condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley. My co-host as always, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Today is Sunday, March 20th, 2016. The title of today's show is From the Invasion of Iraq to the Refugee Crisis, Reshaping the Planet to Phony Terror. We're going to be discussing that awful day back in 2003 and all the events that have led us from there to here when the U.S. invaded Iraq. We'll also be touching on some recent news and events, not least the somewhat mysterious plane crash in Russia yesterday and the latest round of terror attacks, particularly in Turkey. We are also joined this week by Bahar. No, she's not on the line with us yet. Okay. We'll be getting to speak with her soon, hopefully. So, March 20th, 2003 was, of course, the day the U.S. launched shock and awe in Iraq. And it was really a milestone because, well, you could say that nothing has been the same since 9-11. Nothing's been the same in the Middle East in particular since that day. It's been one round of bloody mayhem after another, Critics at the time said this is just going to cause more problems than they're ever going to solve if we even believe they were going in there to solve the problems they claimed. We, of course, had lie after lie about why the war started. Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, Saddam may or may not have been behind 9-11 in some way. And from there, we somehow ended up here 13 years later where vast swathes of the planet, but particularly mean the Middle East and North Africa, are human wastelands. Piles and piles of bodies, mass graves that have yet to be accounted for. Uh, we're talking about some 2 million deaths in Iraq, another 4 million refugees. Most of them haven't even left yet. They're still languishing within the borders of a country that's since been reinvaded of sorts by ISIS. So that's just one sore spot on this planet. Yes, Joe. And I think to myself, what, what a wonderful world. world. Who is that? Um, what's that guy's name? Somebody in the chat room helped me out there. Um, I can't remember his name. <clears throat> that Louis, no, Louis Armstrong was a... Lou Reed? No. No. Not King Cole. Louis Armstrong, there you go. Harrison says Louis Armstrong. I don't know. That guy who sang that song and made it famous. Boy, was he ever wrong. Uh, well, I suppose it's all about perception, isn't it? It just depends what you look at. But these days you have to really not look at a lot of things to be able to sing or think, think to yourself... 
what a wonderful world. Um, by any normal, you know, human standards, but then, of course, you know, we have a bigger, broader perspective that we can take on it, and I suppose that helps a little bit. Um, most people know what that broader perspective is. Um, but it still isn't pretty, because you still have to live here and watch it, and watching it is important. Because as I was saying earlier on, actually, in a conversation with uh, somebody, I just said that, um, in a sense, you could look at it that in the way that if the world wasn't um, so horrible, such uh, wasn't so much death and suffering and chaos and cycles ruling it uh, and creating such a horrible mess, that at least we and other people who are watching it and lamenting the state of the world would not have a motivation or not not feel like uh, wishing for something better or desiring or aspiring to something better you know so but then that's kind of doesn't really make much sense anyway anyway because if the world was a lovely place well you'd have nothing to complain about would you but i don't know i'm trying to find some meaning in it all and uh you know it's a bit tenuous at best but anyway um yeah, twenty year, twentieth uh, anniversary, twenty twentieth of March, thirteen years ago. I was reading through some of the earlier, earliest, some of the earliest signs, um, pages. I don't know if anybody's looked at them in the archives, but they're it's a fairly rudimentary page. It was all right for the time. It was two thousand three, um, and we we used to put the signs page together in a kind of just a linear format in those days, and, and comment on articles. We post articles and comment on them and on that uh, on the March 18th actually two days before Operation Enduring Bullshit or sorry Freedom um, <laughs> Operation Enduring Freedom uh, on 20th of March on March 18th uh, I wrote on the science page and this is what so it's 13 years ago I wrote as I sit here a motion in the UK House of Commons has been defeated by some 415 votes to 149 not that any other result would have stopped the U.S. going to war, but it signifies a full green light to the attack on Iraq. <clears throat> Bush's ultimatum to Saddam expires at midnight, GMT, on Thursday night. Shock and awe, read, death and destruction, may come at any time between now and then. We have at most one day, one day left to ponder at the top of the abyss, at the edge of the abyss, before the coming darkness engulfs us all. As if to mock those who are against this war and the lies and deceit that accompany it, Ari Fleischer today stated that even if Saddam went into exile, now the U.S. would still invade. So it's not about weapons of mass destruction. It's about domination, death and destruction. Perhaps Ari feels he, could, he can be more truthful now that it's a done deal. It must have been hard for him to stand up there every day and lie so profusely, or then maybe not. It's hard for me to describe the feelings I have now. There's an enormous sense of impending doom mixed with anger at being made to feel so helpless in the face of it all. Who are these men that they can simply decide to throw the world and its inhabitants into war without end? And who are we that they could for so long present us with such pathetic and barely disguised lies and know that we would swallow every word? Well, so I wasn't very happy about it, I don't think. No, but you were so right about what it meant 
because it was more than Iraq. It was more than the Middle East. I mean, when you think of everything that's come from it, mm. torture is accepted mm. by most people. At least w whether or not they give it any thought, the fact that it's under their nose means that they accept it. Yeah. It's, it's legitimate for the authorities to torture your fellow people. I mean, just that alone, that's a norm that came out of the invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. To the, on that same science page on, the, on March 18, 2003, after that intro, there was an article, among others, and the article was, the title of the article was, was from The Guardian, still online. Uh, the uh, title was, U.S. firms get 1.5 billion deal to rebuild Iraq. This was two days before they actually invaded. They were handing out deals to U.S. or U.S. firms. Um, and this was, while they were saying that they wanted the UN to be involved, they actually handed this. The story is the United States plans to transform the infrastructure of Iraq within a year of a war ending. But it has sidelined aid agencies by allocating almost all the funds available to private American firms. Non-governmental organizations in the UN would, just get, would get just 50 million a fraction of the 1.5 billion being offered to private companies according to more than 100 pages of confidential contracts, contract le documents leaked to the Wall Street Journal. So two days before they invaded in Iraq, they were already handing out contracts to rebuild it after, before they had even begun to destroy it. They were so sure and so convinced that, I mean, that in itself is a horrible, terrible indictment of, of what they were doing. I mean, they were talking about Operation Iraqi Freedom or Enduring Freedom, you know, being greeted as uh, liberators and all this kind of stuff. And they were planning... At the very least, and this is probably conservative, they're planning to uh, to give. They were giving 1.5 billion dollars of reconstruction contracts to private companies in advance of them actually destroying the infrastructure that these companies would rebuild. So they knew they were premeditated. We're going to go in and cause 1.5 billion worth of uh, destruction. Of course, in the end, they caused uh, far 10 or 20 times that amount, at least more. I think. And most and most of the. Uh, most of the reconstruction money was, you know, it was money for for old rope. Basically, it was it was it was nothing. People people just it was Iraqi money ultimately, the Iraqi treasury money that was looted and given to American companies, and they did no very little reconstruction at all. So, I mean, that that in itself was just shocking. Two days before they even invaded, yeah. and they it, were stating their intention to destroy the country and 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 force the country to pay for destroying it, force the country to pay American companies. And it wasn't even that they were paying them for a good job. They were paying them. They were basically looting the American economy and pretending they were destroying, sorry, destroying the Iraqi econ economy, destroying the Iraqi infrastructure, and then claiming they were going to pay companies to rebuild it, not rebuild it and just give them Iraqi money. So not only did they destroy the country, but they looted it. It's like going, it's basically middle age or whatever era, uh, plunder and pillage. Mm -hmm. You go in, you destroy a village, you steal everything in it, you raise it to the ground, you kill as many people as possible and you leave. That's exactly what they did. Um, and officially, uh, this operation, Enduring Freedom, of course, uh, only lasted 21 days. It was a 21-day uh, war. Well, or, or, well, the way they pitch it was that the war started afterwards. The Iraq war started 21 days after they invaded because the first 21 days of them bombing the crap out of the place was Operation Enduring Freedom. Mm -hmm. It was freedom. But, of course, in those 21 days, and these are pretty, probably, again, conservative <laughs> figures, 45,000 Iraqi soldiers were killed and at least 10,000 
civilians were killed in three weeks of Operation Enduring Freedom. And those 45,000 soldiers and 10,000 civilians killed was in comparison to about 170, quote-unquote, coalition forces. So this was clearly nothing other than a complete turkey shoot. Well, they went in and slaughtered people, slaughtered the Iraqi army, which probably most of them were, were fleeing and, and didn't put up much uh, uh, resistance. And they killed 10,000 people in the first 21 days to boot, and that was only the beginning. For the next 10 years, they went on to kill, as you just said at the beginning, uh, about another 2 million people. Yeah. This is freedom and democracy. I mean, there's no way to varnish that. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's the bare, naked facts of what they did. And that's America. That's what America has done repeatedly around the world plunder, pillage, death, destruction, and call it freedom and democracy. I mean, you can, you know, you can kind of talk about those things and say, yes, yeah, terrible, isn't it? But if you really think about it, I mean, in contrast with the image and the reputation that America has and the way the West, the, 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 the self-image they have in, in, in Western countries, in America and in Western Europe, of America and the Anglo-American kind of... Uh, um, apparatus basically how it's wonderful and it's, it's, it's a fount of all civilization and, and it's, the, it's the exact opposite they're yeah. a bunch of barbarian psycho plunderers destroyers killers murderers and nothing more and that's not that's not i'm not being vehement i'm not being hysterical about it that's the simple facts it's the simple numbers there's no other way to varnish that than, than to, to, to describe it in that way and that's why uh i say Kill them all and let God sort them out. Uh, no, I don't know what I say, but uh, I just uh, don't have much else to say. Yeah. Um, while it was America's war, all countries in the West, but particularly NATO members, are culpable because if you think about all the other conflicts since then, Libya, and of course Afghanistan, which predates Operation Enduring Freedom and still going on, all willingly participated and all profited, at least certain corporate entities within these countries profited. And it makes it the West war. If, if people do feel this affiliation with the West being the best and identify with that, then so be it. And so you, you, and so the cost of identifying with, with that kind of sentiment, that European values or Western values are self-evidently the greatest, then the, the cost that comes with it is that your civilization is one of terror, right. torture, mm -hmm. genocide, and... And you're jumping around thinking it's the, the most wonderful thing since, you know, since sliced bread or... And, and you, get you get hysterical. You identify with it when you feel it's threatened. Yeah. And it's being threatened, of course, fast forward to today by the obvious consequence of what was done. Millions of people on the move and about a million or so streaming into Europe now. And the hysterical reaction to take one example of the the British stance over a relatively small number of migrants slash refugees trying to get into the UK from, from Calais in 
in northern France. I mean, it's what did you expect was going to happen? And it's it's well known. It's well known going back over a century. There were people who were, let's say, lefty, anti-war, anti-empire critics of the regime, Westerners, hundred some years ago, and their argument was always very simple. Look, if you want to engage in this imperialism business, you must realize one of the inevitable costs of it is that those people will end up coming here mm-hmm. for sanctuary, for jobs, for just sheer simple relief of not having bombs fall on their head. It's oh so predictable. I mean, we warned about this at the time. I think a certain number of people instinctively knew this was going to have terrible consequences. And this is why on Sot you will always hear us bring it back to the problem of psychopaths in power unable to realize the consequences of their actions. If they have some idea or if they take it on board no, but they don't. It's not that they don't realize the consequences of their actions. They don't care about the consequences of their actions. And it's not even that they don't care. They actually enjoy the consequences of their actions. Their actions directed towards pillage and plunder and destruction and blowing things up and killing people is something that they want. They like to see it happen. But they're smart enough to realize that you can't just say, I want to go kill some people. You have to present it as freedom and democracy, all sorts of noble ideals. I mean, that's a simple ruse, you know. It's Someone is simply bullshitting you, you know. But of course, yeah, the problem is psychopaths in power because they are so good at lying. They lie to your face without, a, without flinching and they wear a nice suit and they say nice things and behind it all, they're monsters. It's a mask of sanity, effectively. These people are functionally insane from a normal human perspective. From the average human who would say, well, it's insane for someone to want to go around killing people for just for fun. Well, that's what these people do. Mm-hmm. I was going to say something I've remembered now in terms of this being a Western venture at this point. Um, we must accept that because what the invasion of Iraq did... Yes. Who's that? We've got someone on the line? I don't know. Go ahead. What it did... It ended up giving the green light to the elites in other countries in the West that it was okay and acceptable for them, in fact imperative for them to behave in the same way in subsequent conflicts. Just here's one example. In 2003, France and Germany took the official position of being against the war and tried till the, till the end with Vladimir Putin's um, support as well to keep this at the level of UN discussions and in the end of course Britain and the US went alone fast forward 10 years to about 2012-2013 and France and Britain are intervening intervening that's their word isn't it they're plundering and pillaging countries in Africa without much input from the United States. I'm not just thinking of Libya here, where they were obviously out in front with U.S. support in trashing that country, but the French invasion of Mali was bare-naked aggression 
to put down a popular uprising and secure existing French control over uranium mines, gold mines, and other natural resources in what had traditionally been its colony. The British did likewise in Sierra Leone. I think they sent an expeditionary force as soon as Cameron came to power in 2010. So war and, and wars and rumors of wars were given the green light, if you like, from on high. Once Washington set that example, mm. it yeah. just proliferated like wildfire. And, and, and the scum rose to the top. The scum were selected yes, to come everywhere. to the top. Uh, you had a change of kind of card in different places. Uh, Chirac in France, for example, left, and Sarkozy came in, uh, and, and basically either similar type psychopathic, um, you know, uh, psychopathic types were, 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 were came into power or rose to power uh, or, you know, patsies, basically, useful idiots, puppets were shunted in like Holland who uh, who will just do what they're told. And these people, you know, they know enough to realise that they're not the ultimate power by a long shot in, in that particular country and, uh, and and they do what they're told. It's you have a, You're being given a ceremonial position with money and wealth and whatever little perks here and there and just do your job. You're just told by your advisors what to do. Uh, this this world, uh, particularly in the West, is, is ruled from behind the scenes very mm-hmm. clearly. Um, I mean, look at George Bush was the shining example of that, uh, the proof positive of that. I mean, an idiot like that who didn't know Argentina from his backside uh, was not going to be making any decisions on foreign policy and what to do. He couldn't remember the name of foreign leaders, for example. Clearly, the guy does not... The president of America is not the commander-in-chief and the prime minister or whatever leaders of different countries are not in control. Uh, they don't know enough. They haven't been around long enough. They change every few years. But there's securocrats or high-level civil servants, as they're called in, in the UK, or the guys who have been around for, for, for decades and have been pushing a particular agenda for that long. Um, anyway, we have Bahar on the line, finally. Hi, Bahar. Oh, hi. Um, I just, I've been reading a bit about uh, Iraq and I found something interesting and I thought I'd share it with you guys and everyone listening. Um, so, you know, there are some people I spoke to about the invasion and a lot of people think that it was needed and that um, the, their leader, um, Saddam Hussein, was very evil and the people weren't happy. But in fact, you know, um, the quality of life was uh, way much better than it is now. Um, I read a bit about um, how Iraqi women lived back then. Um, Interesting is that the nation produced the first female judge, ambassador and government minister in the Arab world. Uh, Iraqi women benefited from state-subsidized childcare and education. And they once formed about half the public sector workforce and 50% uh, of the country's doctors. And now only 14% of them um, work. So it really is not any better after the invasion. And it's more proof that the reason never was to help free the people or to improve their lives or any of that uh, nonsense, to be honest. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that bit that I... Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> well. Yeah, I mean, it's um, 
Again, it just speaks to the fact that everything we're told about Iraq and the justification that they came up with for their invasion, their pillaging, their plundering, their theft, uh, that it was all to bamboozle and lie to people, so they obviously had to present it in terms of, um, you know, Iraq's such a horrible society with an evil dictator who tortures and kills his own people, blah, 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 blah. The same thing they've been saying about uh, different people for a long time. And uh, none of it's to be believed. And, like, I mean, you, you mentioned, Bahar, that a lot of people thought that uh, said that it was uh, supported it or thought that it was a good idea. Sure, certainly, I think maybe some people did, but the idea that those people think is a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer. You know, it's not really uh, correct. Uh, <laughs> use of, 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 it's not the right verb. You know, I don't think thinking has a lot to do with it. It's like they thought that Saddam was a bad, bad man. Yeah, th- those are the type yeah. of people who know. Well, they knew Saddam was a bad man, right? Uh, those are the kind of people who know <clears throat> that the boogeyman is scary. Because they've been told. Uh, ask any of them and they'll say, yeah, the boogeyman, no one likes him. He hides under your bed, doesn't he? So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of level of knowing that those people have. It's basically they just absorb uh, anything they're told, fairy stories, fantasies, and um, and they run they with it. And then, the headlines. Yeah. And of course, the headlines are massively skewed in favor of supporting war, pillage, plunder, death, destruction, so that psychopaths can, have their, can get their jollies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's an interesting correlation, though. I don't know if it tells us anything about how they chose which country to go for now, now, and now. But um, what if it's like in the way that Gaddafi's Libya was actually unusually progressive, secular, developed for, for you know for its region, in fact, for the whole continent of Africa, and then with Saddam Hussein's Mm-hmm. later Iraq anyway in, yeah. in his last period what if it's the very fact that maybe the, the beast if you like the idiots in the Pentagon are getting these signals that such and such a place is getting away from us mm-hmm. and I, objectively what that means is it's becoming too independent yeah. it's it's not going the way we want it to too I, developed it's becoming there's, too, too, there's yeah. too, too many thinkers coming up in that country there's the ed, the Society, the culture is developing uh, too far. It's uh, it's producing, you know, the education system is too is is progressing and evolving uh, too far. It's producing too many intellectuals, too many people who who, who can think, uh, too many people who can uh, sway other people with valid, logical, rational arguments, i.e., for independence and divesting from the from or getting out from under the the jackboot of, of the West that um, they've been under for so long since the since the creation of the Middle East. Uh, so as soon as they saw that happening, yeah, uh, it, that has to be stopped. And so it's exactly the opposite of what they say, actually. I mean, again, we've mentioned this on, on several shows in the past that the way you can uh, uh, interpret what's going on in the world is listen to a, a Western politician speak about anything and and interpret it or flip it on its head, do a, a complete 180, reverse exactly what the person said, and that is pretty close to the truth. The further we go on in time, the more and more you can do that with it, with <clears throat> you know, and and be 100% sure. <clears throat> that, they, that the opposite is the truth, uh, and that at that point, then uh, on the Ara- on the Iraq uh, claims about Saddam was a bad man, and you know he was uh, Iraqi society was suffering and stuff. The, the opposite was true. Iraqi society was flourishing and flowering and developing, and that's why it had to be destroyed. Yeah, and it's been destroyed. Yeah, and it's still in ruins largely today. Um. We've discussed it before, and maybe just quickly go 
back over it again. So is there a purpose to this pattern? Is, has it followed a plan? We could mention the project for a new American century in 1999 or earlier even. Um, policy papers written by people who would subsequently be in the Bush government in some way or another about the need to reshape the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, we've got General Wesley Clark, who was former NATO commander, reporting in about 2007 that he was in the Pentagon shortly after 9-11 and had a discussion with a general there who said, come here, I want to show you something, and here's a list of the seven countries we're going to invade. And he names them Libya, Iraq, Iran, Syria, oh, and Somalia, whatever. And finally, sorry, Iran was the last one. And that's pretty close to what's been going on, what's happened and or is currently under consideration. Mm -hmm. um, in 2006, Condoleezza Rice, now out of government, I think, anyway, she gave a speech somewhere and, and said that what we're witnessing is if she was describing the overall situation there. What we're witnessing is the birth pangs of a new Middle East. I can't remember if there's more to what she said, but it had the suggestion that there's some plan or structure to this. I mean, what they have today, is that what they wanted? Mm -hmm. Do they even know what they wanted? Well, it's kind of nihilism, you know. It's, it's uh, destructive nihilism where they all they want is is to continue to destroy and dominate other people. That's their idea of heaven. Uh, it doesn't have an agenda. That, and that's the hardest thing for people to work out, you know, mm. is that these people don't really have uh, an agenda other than destroying as much and dominating as much as possible. It's not for a particular purpose. It's an end in itself. The enjoyment of destruction and domination of, of other people and uh, flaunting your, your power and control over them. That's, that's the end. That's the end goal, and we've seen it happen, and yeah. that's what... Go ahead, Bahar. Uh, but I'm guessing their plans in Syria have been um, changed, maybe, or interrupted, at least, by Russia's actions. Right. Um, that's, that's the kind of... <laughs> this is a shocking thing, or the, uh, that, that Russia has come along and, um, and really embarrassed them, you know, uh, to the extent that they're capable of, of embarrassment, but... Russia comes along and says, okay, it's been a while. You guys have been doing this war and terror business for quite a long time. We thought we'd just intervene or help you out. And okay. Russia comes in within four or five months. It's basically kind of kicked ass, taken names and cleaned up a big, a big terrorism problem in Syria or gone a long way to doing it and really exposed the Western powers for the fact that they were in cahoots with these terrorists. That, I mean, exposed the fact if, if you just read a little between the lines, it's not difficult. You can see that obviously <clears throat> if Russia was able to go into Syria and in four or five months uh, turn the tide against ISIS, Daesh, whatever you want to call it, and, um, mm -hmm. and lead the situation to a peaceful resolution, whereas for four years previous, um, Western powers had been wringing their hands saying, oh, what are we going to do? And, oh, and now there's ISIS. What are we going to do with them? And, oh, my goodness, we can do nothing. Well, dude, it doesn't take much to realize that the reason you're – you obviously can do something about it, but you're choosing not to because you support what's happening in Syria. So uh, Russia comes in and says, okay, let's take you at your word. You want to get rid of uh, ISIS or so you say, let's do it. Okay, Russia does it. And the West is kind of very, very pissed off about that. You know, they're not very happy at all, and they've been – you know, striking back, lashing out at Russia in various different ways 
uh, over the past few years uh, because they don't really have much else they can do, you know. I mean, last year when Russia, uh, last September or October, when Russia came into Syria and set up uh, their uh, missile shield, their S-400s, basically, uh, there was reports in, in the press at that time that uh, as soon as the day that they set those up, uh, Turkish and US or coalition or whatever flights over Syria stopped. Just there was no more no more Turkish or, or US planes in the sky on that day as soon as it set up. I mean, I mean that in itself is points to the fact that Russia isn't bluffing here and <clears throat> the West isn't bluffing uh, in in the sense that they are pissed off at Russia and because Russia has the means and capability to basically say stop, no more, you're done, and mean it. And if they want to get their plane shot out of this guy, go ahead and uh, try your luck. But they're smart enough to know that that's not a good idea. So, um, yeah, I'd just like to see Russia do more of that, you know. I mean, just last week, I think, or not so long ago, a Russian submarine popped up in the Mediterranean off the coast of uh, of Tunisia, I think, um, or, or Libya. And this was seen as a, sh- a sign of, it was picked up by the, detected by the French or whatever, and they saw it as a sign of, Russia saying possibly that you know Russia is in, in a position to also protect um, northeast uh, North African countries, other countries like Libya, and to intervene there if necessary to uh, to stop any more of this uh, terrorism, ISIS nonsense spreading around the world and threatening that that it can do more and it has and it's shown its capability in Syria. So um, yeah, it'd be nice to see the nice to think that. Um, Russia would have an intention to not <clears throat> just stop at, at Syria, <clears throat> but to move on and clean up more of the neighborhood, you know, get rid of the vermin uh, from the West. Yeah, it would be nice, but it's it's not realistic. Oh. It, Russia has limited resources. It's big, but it's it's got its limits, you know, and there's only so much it's probably willing to risk. Um, I, w- I wouldn't underestimate them. Okay, well, I'm just taking the cautious approach today then because um, they seem to be doing an awful lot by uh, by cheap means. Diplomacy, for example. I mean, the very act of, here we are five months later, <clears throat> they've already stunned the West by going in there in the first place. It's equally stunning to them that they're leaving. I think Russia would can get a lot, a lot of mileage out of seeing the effects its actions, both in and out, have, um, not just for the, in the immediate situation, clearing up Syria or maybe Libya if they go there later, but its effects on the halls of power in Europe and even in the US. Because <laughs> the, the, the reaction last week to, oh, we're leaving, by the way, was completely... I think jaws just dropped everywhere because... It went against all the narratives they've been producing, which, oh, well, Russia's obviously there because it has imperial interests and wants to colonize Syria, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then it's not so obvious anymore, and they don't have any framework to understand it because all they know is grab and take themselves. Mm-hmm. So what's Russia's game here? You yeah. know? And you see them trying to second-guess it, and it's hilarious because they don't understand that, well, if you have a normal person say, hmm, there's a terrorist problem here, we've been invited by the leader of that country to come and sorted out. We're going to be there for a number of months. That's what he said. That's what he meant. That's what he did. <clears throat> right, they're confused by truth. Yeah, they're they don't confu- understand they see it. Russia, Russia must have the same interests or the same motives that we have, you know, which is uh, 
to get something for itself, to screw over everybody, to lie to the whole world and then bomb and, and, and kill and, and, and maim and, and steal. Uh, so, so look for that. Some, and we need to get our analysts in the in the State Department here in the Pentagon to to look for what Russia wants out of this. And they probably spent like thousands of hours and you know millions of reams of paper printing out documents showing here's what we think is going on. And if they couldn't see, if they helped Russia along, well, you've got a problem. You've got a PR problem here, guys. I tell you what, we're going to get our Turkish buddies to fire at a hospital in Syria. Then we'll blame it on your military, right. and then you'll get the PR value from you know because you see. You're just like us. They had to create that fact to make real their claims that Russia was killing civilians mm. wantonly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they weren't. <laughs> That's so, how clean it was. Yeah, so they just don't, they don't understand truth. It's like uh, they don't understand people who, because it's the antithesis of who they are and their nature, they don't understand anybody in a position of power to actually do something on, on, the, on the global stage. They don't understand anybody who does what they say they will do. Like, hang on a minute. <clears throat> We, like, never do what we say we're going to do. We do the opposite of what we're going to do when we lie to everybody. So I'm just confused here, Russia, about <clears throat> the way you kind of said you were going to go into Syria and bomb the terrorists and, and the way that you did that, like, as in you, you kind of did that, you know. So I'm not really understanding your policy here. What, what, what am I missing? The whole, like, saying something and then doing it, what's up with that? What are you doing? Yeah, you don't you don't do you don't do that. Uh, I'm sorry. We'll have to go back and investigate this or something because you don't understand what you're doing. Bahar, you mentioned that you. There were, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to say that there were some Dutch uh, politicians um, who said that we'll have to see first and then we'll believe it about um, Russia moving away from Syria. So they they didn't believe him. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's half honest because it's natural for them to be skeptical because all they know from what they've seen is, is pillage and plunder, even if they, they are afraid to actually call out Washington or London when they do it. Um, that is a reasonable position to take. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not crazy. But um, <clears throat> Russia hasn't really left, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's thing. following in the same footsteps of, I mean, like, you know, the U.S. What left Iraq several years ago but didn't, left Afghanistan but then changed its mind and didn't. So the idea of leaving is just a drawdown of forces because you don't need so many anymore. But they're keeping something like 20, they've still got 20 planes there uh, and they're going to keep them there. And they've got uh, an S-400, at least one there that's covering uh, most of the uh, eastern, Syria. East, eastern Syria area, i.e., you know, Turks still can't fly there and neither can the Americans or the Brits. And that's going to stay that way. And um, Russia, is, I'm pretty sure they're still bombing the 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 West jihadis, the West's proxy forces. Um, they're doing like maybe they're down from eighty sorties a day to twenty. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the leaving kind of thing. But that's that's par for the course. You don't you don't just walk away from something like that. You've you've tried to set up and uh, when it's you know got to a certain point you don't just walk away and let it fall apart again because you know the jackals are you know gathering uh, to, to try and uh, they'd be straight in to try and undo what you've done so you have to safeguard your 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 progress and your what you've what you've established so uh yeah meanwhile kurds in the north of syria have supposedly declared a breakaway or 
at least a federated republic of northern Kurdistan, or I'm not sure what they're going to call it, but or Rojava is one name I've heard mentioned. Mm. But that's one specific part. It's only like a province <clears throat> on the border between Syria and Turkey. The Americans don't like that. They're they don't. In, they're not into federalization, not allowed to have federalization. Like the guy um, in the State Department, State Department spokesman, the male version of Jen Psaki that came in afterwards, whatever his name is, John. John Kirby. John Sickey. Uh, John Sickey came in and he's saying um, the Syrian people are allowed to decide their own future and how they want to be governed, except they can't have Assad. And they can't have any kind of federalization. The Kurds aren't allowed to have their own province. There's no breakup of Syria in any way whatsoever. But other than that, uh, they can do what they want. Well, they also have to drink Coca-Cola. and Buy Boeings. Buy Boeings. And they can only sleep uh, six hours a night. And they all have to wear American flag underwear. <laughs> and uh, watch, watch, watch American TV shows. But apart from that, they can do whatever they want. Uh, but they're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed elections. And they have to stop eating hummus. But apart from that, they can do whatever they want. And they're not allowed, not allowed to drink mate either. Because that cuts into the Coca-Cola sales. But apart from that, they can do whatever they want. It's full independence. America has no interest whatsoever in Syria. You know, a lot of times when I watch these people, like the, the State Department business, and I know the guys there. There's one guy, I don't, don't know his name, the reporter that always asks kind of questions and stuff. And even there's the RT girl there who asks questions at the, of, of the State Department business. And um, I know they have to, you know, watch what they say. They can challenge to a certain extent. And it's not, easy, it's not hard to challenge the bullshit that this guy uh, puts out. But I'm pretty sure they have to watch what they say or they won't be invited back. It'll, I'm no. sure it can be managed that you no longer get a pass. That guy, for example, works for... Matt a, Lee. Matt Lee. He's an Associated Press reporter. Yeah. So... Maybe. Right, you can only go so far. Yeah. But if I was there, I would only get one day, obviously. You know? If I could get in, I would only get one day and I'd never, never be allowed back. But <clears throat> I'd probably be putting Kate more or something. But they... What I always would like them to ask is just... Uh, just a small point here, but you know the way America is like, you know, over in the West. You know, there's a big sea between America and Europe even, and then there's the whole landmass of Europe over, you know, Western Europe over to the Middle East. What, what is, where is America coming from when it thinks it can decide anything that happens in a sovereign country? I mean, a, a foreign country. America is an independent country, right? It's on its own, right? And it's a... There's a United Nations of countries, and they're all sovereign nations, right? So what the hell does America think it's doing deciding anything about any other country in the world? And I know I'm just asking this about Syria, but I could ask it about, you know, dozens of other countries over the past 50 or 60 years. You know, who the hell do you think you are deciding what happens in any other country in the world? I mean, have you ever thought about just going home and leaving people alone? You know, just like... Getting the hell out of everywhere and there anywhere, <laughs> and uh, but no, uh, nobody asked that because that would be 
getting too close to the bone, really, I think. I mean, well, it would. The answer they might give you is that... Um, okay, you be State Department man and I'll be... some journalist guy. Well, John Kirby, he might say, well, you see, after World War Two, we had to keep the peace. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Keep the peace? Yes. So we're over there to make sure there's no wars. To make sure there's no wars, but people should be allowed to have their wars if they, if they need to. What's it, what interest is it of yours? Well, you see, if there's no wars, then you make the world safe for democracy. You can have democracy in your own country and let other people decide what uh, kind of system of government they want to have. Yes, but you see, the U.S. has an interest in the rest of the world. Right, uh, these are the fabled strategic interests that you, you talk about. Uh, what are these strategic interests? Can you say? You probably can't say, can you? Well, what are your interests in the Middle East, for example? To ensure that there's enough Coca-Cola for no, everyone. No, I mean, you have admitted in the past that you're interested in oil in the Middle East, because that's very important for Americans. That's kind of important right? too, yeah. And I mean, these Arab countries that have this oil, they can't just, I mean, you can't just sit back and watch them kind of do whatever they want with, it, with this oil that America needs, right? I mean, I mean, they can't be allowed to, to, to have a stranglehold over America in terms of the amount of oil that America needs, uh, and they maybe not supply it to you or something, or, or, or threaten or blackmail you in some way with, with their oil. Well, we need to make sure that it's distributed fairly around the world. Right, someone else's property, basically. Yeah. How does that work? I mean, have you, ever theirs, tried that your, have you ever tried that in your local neighborhood where you go to your neighbor and say, listen, neighbor, you've got a bunch of stuff there that should be distributed around the community, and I'm going to make sure that... Uh, gets distributed properly, like your stuff gets distributed around to other people. I know you already sell it to them, but I don't think I don't like the way you're selling it, and I want to have the say over who you sell it to or not. And I'm going to enforce that. I mean, you do that in your local neighbourhood, right? And you go in, and if the guy says, if your neighbour says, well, you know, screw you, it's my stuff, and I'll sell it to whoever I want, and then you go in and you blow up his house and you kill his family and him. That's kind of the way it, it works, no? I know I've been kicked out of the place already at this stage. But... <laughs> I, yeah, anyway. I, I do think they see it, um, it fundamentally like that, that there needs to be someone there to make sure everything is distributed fairly. That no one else it's does. ironic because it's a very communist position to take, that I'll be in a monopoly of state power to make sure everything is distributed fairly, but of course... In the official ideology of the United States, it's very much the opposite. It's capitalist, competitive, live and let be. It's libertarian, you know. Who are you to come and say what I should do? I have my own rights. I'm going to protect my property. Mm -hmm. It's ingrained in Americans. But when it comes to foreign policy, it's, it's sort of inverted. Everybody's stuff is my stuff. Yes, and I will say where it goes and who it goes to. And, of course, the key issue with respect to Syria is... This is this is the thing. The U.S.'s interest, strategic interest, one of them anyway, is where Qatar's gas is going to and going through. Um, the Americans said they're against the federalization of Syria, but I think they don't mind anything that leads to splitting it up because if they have an alternative country they can control, a Kurdistan or something, then they can control that country for some, some time at least and run their pipeline through there. Yeah, but they don't trust the Kurds. 
Kurds, they don't trust that the Kurds ultimately would would align with 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 America and they would make a deal with. There's too much. There's too much. Too many unknowns, you know. Mm. There, as Don Don Rumsfeld would say, he's probably he's probably wringing his hands at this point over all the unknowns going on, and he's probably freaked out about the no, the known knowns and the unknown unknowns and stuff like that. I mean, uh, it's all a bit chaotic, and especially they're all unknown knowns and known unknowns and uh, knowing known known things because. Uh, because they're not the ones who are leading it anymore. Because Russia has come in and has changed the the direction that they that the U.S. thought they were they were charting. Uh, it, it's really unknown at this point, and they're they're not. They've decided. They've sat down in the Pentagon and said, "Listen, we want to keep Syria. The best bet here is to keep Syria whole, so that we can try and eventually usher in some. You know." Uh, Probably they're probably thinking. Listen, let it let's let it happen. Let's let the whole process, peace process, happen. Let's get rid of the ISIS business and let Syria have their elections and stuff. You know, and we'll try and work some magic in there, and eventually, in a few years, we'll have another kind of revolution. But it'll be a shorter one. We won't use the jihadis this time and stuff. But we'll have a bit of revolution, overthrow the government, and get someone else in in the traditional style from you know African countries, wherever you know. We can work it that way. But the best thing is to keep Syria. Let's get what we wanted to get. Originally via ISIS and by another means, effectively, which is simply a change of government in Syria that, to a government that is fully compliant with the West. They're probably taking a slightly longer view now, you know, mm. because they have no choice. I and, don't. I don't see that ever happening in a in a unitary Syrian state with a Russian airbase parked on it. No, no, yeah. But there, I mean, <laughs> these people are fundamentally delusional, and you know, they, they they never know when to quit. They'll continue to uh, try and do what they've always done um, because it worked for so long uh, and they can't really they're not in a position where they can just reconfigure their whole ideology simply because Russia has come in and kind of for the first time really thwarted them in in their imperial uh, adventures imperial aggression around the world you know so it's taken them a while to, 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 to try and deal with that new reality you know you know, in your face, Karl Rove, here's a new reality for you, you know. He's probably, Karl Rove probably has just gone, kind of like had a mental breakdown, you know. He can't work out how his reality was superseded by a Russian reality, you know. He's like, this just can't be, you know. I mean, what's going on? It's not working anymore. Push the button again. Keep pushing the button. See if it works. Go ahead. Um, there's uh, one question I have about... Um, Kurdistan, uh, because it was a bit confusing to me, um, because I thought that the U.S. Uh, was first supportive of uh, Kurdistan um, establishment somewhere in, in Syria and taking a chunk from Turkey, or were they mostly using that to add pressure to Turkey or to threaten it? Because yeah. um, I was... Yeah. Oh, were you going to say something more? Something else? Yeah, I was. I was reading your article, and you said you wrote. Um, so the Turkish government was faced with a choice: side with NATO in the destruction and dismemberment of Syria and safeguard Turkish territorial integrity, or risk losing it if the Assad government were somehow to prevail against the West's jihadi army. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very good point. Who said that? <laughs> you did. Uh, yeah. So, so what's uh, what's the question? So, 
the question is, you're saying now that Americans uh, don't want Kurdistan, but did they ever want a Kurdistan to exist? I think for their probably, own purposes. I think they were willing to allow it to happen because they were helping the Kurds uh, over the past number of years before the Russian intervention. They were helping the Kurds uh, with their fight against ISIS. They were keeping that as a possibility as part of. Uh, I think ultimately they were going to be happy with a. Uh, a federalized or broken up Syria division of Syria, um, with and Kurd- Iraq, with yeah, with Kurds in the north, and allow even the Kurdistan yet yeah, continued from Syria into Iraq, and uh, you know whether or not it would take a part of Turkey, they were probably uh, that was open question, but they were happy enough to let the Kurds have uh, a, a autonomous region or whatever in Syria, um, as a way to better control. Uh, you know, the Syria, Syrian territory, you know, and they were hoping to stage manage all of that. You know, they would be the brokers, basically, where they they would, uh, as part of when they would come in eventually and um, deal with the, when Assad was eventually overthrown by jihadis, the U.S. then would step in and actually do what, you know, what it, what it claimed to be doing, which was, you know, deal with the situation, get rid of the jihadis, and then prop up some, some uh, puppet government in Syria um, and and allow the Kurds to have at that point they could have I mean the thing is these people just uh, turn um, betray their allies all the time so at that point they could have easily just said sorry Kurds we changed our mind you're not getting anything you know but in terms of weakening the Syrian the Assad government uh, they were happy to allow to help the Kurds and give the Kurds um, weapons and stuff to initially the Kurds were really meant to be fighting against um, fighting against the, the Syrian uh, army. Uh, that's actually what happened in in Iraq in, in 2003. Uh, the the Peshmerga, uh, uh, Kurdish Iraqi Kurds, were actually involved in Operation Enduring Freedom initially, uh, because it was. I mean, that's if you're going to if you want to invade a country and overthrow the government and weaken the government, then you look for any fracture points in the country, any groups in the country that have wanted independence. Separatists, and you, and, yeah, and you use them, and they did the same in Syria. But uh, basically, basically, um, uh, Russia, when Russia came in, Russia more or less just took that away from them and took the took the Kurds and said, "Listen, we can offer you a far better deal here." Well, first of all, the Russians came in and said, "We're the ones who are actually the real actors in this country. We're the ones who are deciding what happens, and we're we're gonna, you know, really deal with terrorism, and we're going to then uh, establish and push forward a peace process, and we are going to if we're the ones who have designed that." That uh, process and followed it through. We are the we are the arbiters of it. We are the ones who have a lot of influence over it. So Russia basically took the took control of that whole situation of, of the future of Syria away from uh, the U.S. and the Kurds now um, are basically looking to the Russians to facilitate a, a, a you know an autonomous region or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. And because the Kurds are no longer under the sway of America, that's why America is saying, no, we don't agree with the Kurds uh, wanting that. We want it to be a whole country. And it's just, they're just developing okay. policy on the fly. You know, now they're having to really reconfigure and retool their, their, their plans, the U.S. is, for Syria because of what Russia has done. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of up in the air, you know, so they're scrambling to come up with new policy, you know. I mean, that's what the guy yeah. was saying in that, in that State Department day. Uh, Conference, um, press statement or press conference, or whatever the last one uh, that re- reporter, uh, what's his name, Lee, um, he said. Uh, but 
you're saying now that you don't want the Kurds to have any kind of independence. You don't support anything, any kind of autonomy in Syria. Um, but but uh, like a, a couple of years ago, you were saying that you did support that. Why why have you changed? And what uh, Sicky John Sicky Saki, whatever his name is, John uh, Curvy cur- Curveball uh, said was um, he said well. What he didn't say was the truth, obviously. The truth would have been, he just gave some bullshit answer, but the truth was obviously, well, the reason we've changed, we've done a 180 on the Kurds is because we're no longer in control of the situation. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we don't, or anything Russia wants or anything, basically, we just change our policy uh, because Russia, basically. But he's not allowed to say Russia. It's a bad word. It's a dirty yeah. word in the State Department, unless you're saying something bad about it. And I think what's going on in Turkey, inside Turkey now, is... Um, indicative of the fear in Istanbul about the US basically taking that position on it now mm-hmm. as in having a more hands-off disinterested approach to what happens in Syria Tur- yeah. Turkey's going oh Jesus we have to then because we've now got a situation where they've inflamed the Kurds who've moved in and occupied much of north eastern Syria mm-hmm. And they're being taken seriously on the international level because the Western media spent the last two years bigging up the Kurdish resistance fighters in their war against ISIS terrorists to the point where the point where Westerners, usually uh, um, former vets basically, fighter who fought in the Iraq war 10 years ago, who are rushing to sign up with the Kurds to fight with them because they made their cause so noble and glorious and great over these last two years. And now there's a problem for Istanbul because um, it's become too much of a reality, a fact on the ground that they're left holding the can for. Because you've got to remember, Turkey, of course, has spent decades, its entire existence really as the nation state we know as Turkey, has been about beating the crap out of Kurdish people inside its own borders. And also, uh, this, this was not the first conflict in which Turkey sent jets into either Iraq or Syria, to target Kurds. At every um, conflict, when the Gulf War broke out in 1991, the Turks were on the spot with jets firing at Kurds who were fleeing Saddam Hussein, allegedly, because Saddam Hussein was allegedly lashing out with, remember the, the gas attacks against Kurds? And even in the conflict prior to that, the Kurds, the, the, the Turks, sorry, were also up there with their jets firing at any refugees fleeing the Iran-Iraq war when Kurds were also moving in that direction because their natural source of, of refuge, if you're a Kurd in northern Iraq, in Iran also, and in Syria, your natural place to go for refuge is in Turkey where there are millions, well, million, the, the largest amount of Kurds, I think, 40% of the Kurdish nation, in quotes, lives in southeastern Turkey. Turkey. So it's been a perennial problem for Turkey, but in these, since the middle of last year, they've gone berserk. Well, that's it's getting worse and worse. Well, that's it. because they've been hoisted on, the, on their own petard. It's all gone horribly wrong Totally for, for the Turks because they're the ones who were fully behind ISIS and Daesh and getting rid of the, the Assad government. So they, f- they fueled that whole four-year-long, five-year-long... Um, uh, war, proxy war, uh, and what it did in the process was 
give massive um, impetus towards uh, a Kurdish autonomous region, as, as the Kurds are claiming now in Syria, which is right on the border with, 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 with Turkey. And that autonomous state, in theory and almost in practice, extends right into Turkey to encompass all of the, the Kurds in Turkey. And this is what has the, the Turks, uh, the Turkish establishment freaked out now, is that they have crea- basically created the situation by, f- by supporting the, war- the proxy war in Syria. They've created the situation where uh, Kurdish uh, calls for autonomy are much, much louder and much stronger now, and that threatens to spill over into Turkey, and you would have a chunk of Turkey being lost. Uh, and, and it means they're all their own doing. And what's the response? The response is to uh, plant a bunch of bombs, and they've been blowing bombs, blowing Turkish people and whoever else up inside Turkey repeatedly over the past uh, year or so uh, as a response to that because they want to demonize the Kurds in Turkey. They want to basically, basically have a justification to go into the Kurdish areas in Turkey that are also clamoring for a kind of independence and basically kill them all. And it's not just going in and doing that, which they have been doing. They've been going in and killing people in Kurdish towns inside Turkey to, to, to put them down, basically. They've They've needed the justification to do that, so what they do is they plant some bombs in, in Istanbul or in Ankara and blame it on the Kurds. I mean, it's just pathetic, you know. Yeah. Um, just on, on that note quickly, before we talk specifically about the terror attacks in, in Turkey, um, it's almost getting zero coverage in the Western media. Um, but RT journalists have crossed from northern Syria into Turkey and there are towns there that are in as bad a shape as those bombed out cities we've seen in Syria they're basically ghost towns now no one's quite sure where these people went but the RT journalists found evidence of massacres of people being basically burned to death um, in groups and places where they took refuge from shelling and bombing from the air from the Turkish military so there are ghost towns it has spread over from Syria into Turkey, completely of Turkey's own doing, of course, because they're the ones doing all the killing. But it, it, it's funny that just as something, at least on the political, diplomatic, media level, tamps down, calms down a little in Syria, up in Turkey, things are completely on fire. And an indication of this has been the massive increase in terror attacks in the western Turkish cities of Istanbul and, of course, the capital, Ankara, uh, of which the latest was only just two days ago, and Joe wrote a little something on it. Um, breaking news it was it was a suicide bomber. I mean, how do they know immediately that a suicide bomber? Well, it doesn't matter. It's all over the western press. Suicide bomber kills people in a shopping street in Istanbul. Yeah. It's just amazing, you know, the whole suicide, we've talked about this before, but the whole suicide bomber thing has become such, uh, such a uh, commonplace uh, term and it's seen as automatically associated with any uh, bombings or explosions that happen, um, you know, anywhere, anywhere east of Greece, basically. Um, if there's bombing, it's always suicide bombing, you know, and it's just farcical, the whole idea. No one ever thinks about it, that, you know, people who... Are in a position, obviously, have the technology to build a bomb. Do not have the wherewithal to know to do anything else with it other than strap it to themselves and detonate it. They can build a bomb, which is equally requires this exact same amount of technical knowledge uh, as a, as 
to build a bomb that you strap to yourself and detonate takes the exact same amount of uh, technical knowledge as building a bomb that you place somewhere. But this leap of imagination to taking it off yourself and putting it in a backpack, for example, and dropping it somewhere and walking away and then detonating it, they haven't been able to make that uh, that strategic uh, leap, you know. So unfortunately, they keep sacrificing operatives in this way because they simply can't come up with the idea of putting a bomb somewhere and leaving it, you know. I can just see the instructional classes, you know, where they're training these people to do it, you know. And it's just not taken, you know. They've tried over and over again. Say, listen. Now here's. Oh, now you've got your bomb ready. Now you put it in this bag, take it somewhere, and you drop it in at the location. Then you walk away, and when you're at a safe distance, you detonate it. Right now, have you got that? And they go, okay. So I put bomb on self, and I blow self up. No, no, no. <laughs> no, let me start again. You don't put it on yourself. You put it away from yourself. Okay, put bomb on self. No, all right, forget this. Okay, you just put it in yourself. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's ridiculous. But it obviously makes sense from the point of view of, uh, as we mentioned in Fitting previous in shows, the narrative of the demonization of Muslims, basically. Because when you have people who only blow themselves up, they that puts it in a different category. That's no longer kind of resistance against... Uh, uh, well, there's two, two, two aspects to it. One is that you blow yourself up, and the, and the other one is that you always attack civilians, you kill civilians, because that takes you out of the realm of ju- what, what's seen as justified resistance, where a justified resistance against an oppressive occupying power or whatever, or, 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 or a government, uh, a justified resistance would be seen as one that attacks the military forces that are oppressing them, or government um, institutions, or, or government leaders, or politicians, basically, people who are who can be arguably said to be responsible for the oppression that they're uh, submitting you to or committing against you. So that's, that, that has some traction in the West if you're able to do that, if you're a resistance movement and you do that. If you attack military in- infrastructures, that's seen as, well, it's war. It's, it's, do these people have a cause? It's, it's justified. But if you go and blow yourself up and kill ordinary civilians who have nothing to do with the conflict, well, then you delegitimize yourself. You delegitimize your cause in the eyes of the West, and the Western media makes a lot out of that, of presenting it as having no legitimacy whatsoever, and simply crazy, radical, fundamentalist, nutjob, jihadi, crazed, killer, bomber, suicide, nutjobs. And, and, we're and people in the West... That they have, haven't figured it out yet. And people in the West have no, give no support for that. Yeah. But that's, so that's the narrative. That's why they com- continually do the suicide bomb thing, and why these bombings always, nearly always attack civilians, like the ones in Turkey... They killed civilians who have no involvement whatsoever. Uh, so it fits the narrative, the Western narrative, the ongoing long-term Western narrative of demonizing Muslims, which fits, serves the agenda, the Western agenda of meddling and interfering and bombing and invading Middle Eastern countries to deal with these crazy people. It's a very simplistic thing. It's just demonization they're, of crazy people. They're backward savages. You see, we have to be there because... Otherwise, they'll just keep blowing themselves and innocent people up. Right. Yeah, somebody has to do something to stop the madness, you know. So, but it's nonsense, obviously, and that's why there's lots of evidence that um, these kind of bombings as well are not even carried out by the groups. The third element is that these groups don't actually carry out any, any um, bombings or whatever themselves. Because <clears throat> they don't... Legitimate groups and any group that uh, 
that exists is, is kind of legitimate, that isn't controlled by, is an independent group, it generally has a legitimate cause. And they're smart enough to know that, you know, you don't go around killing civilians and you don't blow yourself up, you attack the, you put pressure on the state or whatever that you're trying to, that you're fighting against. Uh, so, but in terms of the demonization of it, of it, uh, of these groups, if you want to delegitimize them, what you do is you carry out acts in their name. You carry out acts that kill civilians that you say claim, you say involved suicide bombers, and you, so you delegitimize, you delegitimize them for them, you know, on their behalf, without their knowledge. Uh, and this is the bulk of Muslim terrorism, basically, which is that uh, Western individuals or Western agents have been carrying out bombing attacks against civilians uh, themselves and then blaming it, using it as justification to attack um, whatever group they want to attack, whatever group that they blame it on. Um, the one in Ankara, we dealt with that one, Harrison and myself wrote an article on the one in Ankara, which was uh, probably definitely not a suicide. Anytime you hear about a car suicide bomb, especially in, a, in, a, in an urban area, Again, it takes the it takes the theory to a ridiculous extreme, completely implausible, where someone would have a bomb in a car and wouldn't have the wherewithal to get out of the car before he blows it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you know, on a busy street, you know, nobody's suspecting anything. You drive your car bomb along, and uh, you park it there. Not a word. No police in sight. Nobody's suspecting anything. Uh, you have a choice now. Will I get out or will I stay in the car? I'll I'll hang around just for the fun, you know. Because then, you know, it well, you makes see, sense because, I mean, why would I want to, if I'm fighting for a cause, why would I want to be alive to do it again? Like, you know, I mean, I'm just a one-time kind of guy, you know what I mean? I don't want to live to see the culmination or the, 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 the bringing to fruition of, of the goal, of the, of the goals um, to which I have pledged my life. I want to kill myself right now. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you just look at the history of resistance movements. It's nonsensical yeah. whatsoever, you know. Whatever. Anyway, so this guy in Ankara, supposedly a bomb goes off. Well, yeah, you can throw in suicide bomb all you like, you know. If, if the bomb killed, what, 27 people, you know, and it, there's carnage and stuff. Yeah, you can say, yeah, we found, we found some bits of a, of a suicide bomb. Well, and, and who's doing the autopsy? Who's doing... Who's running the pathology reports on that? Oh, that's all the state. Oh, you're doing it then. You're the, the one who's saying this is a suicide bomber. The one is the one who has control over over the investigation. Okay, so you basically can say whatever you want. You could say that Barney the Purple Dinosaur was in that car. And you could throw in some pieces of purple cloth and say, see, there it is. You know, I mean, nobody has any... I mean, it's, it's nonsense. Um, so they said it was a, a suicide bomb, but obviously it was just a car bomb. A car that somebody placed and anybody place that anybody with an interest in demonizing the Kurds, i.e. the Turkish government, could easily have driven up a car, parked it in that place, walked away, pushed a button, boom, there you go, suicide bomber, whatever. And um, so that was, uh, that was that one, more or less, and uh, obviously immediately blamed it on the Kurds. Duh. Uh, but the recent one had a curious casualty list. Well, the recent one was interesting because it was in a busy street, uh, in one of the, the busiest kind of shopping street, big street in, in, Istanbul. in Istanbul. And it was on Saturday morning and it wasn't a very big bomb. Uh, killed five people, four or five people. They get into a, a kind of dubious area here when they say it included the bomber. 
But if there was no bomber, then that person wasn't a bomber. He was a victim because there was no suicide bomb. Because <clears throat> anyway, they said it was a suicide bomber <clears throat> killed three Israeli Jews. Uh, one Iranian, apparently, is the latest report I read, plus the bomber, who is supposedly a, a Turk. Anyway, the strange thing is, on a busy street, on a Saturday morning, in Istanbul, with thousands of people on a big street, somehow you kill three Israeli Jews. What are the odds? You've got to be fairly astronomical against that happening. So what yeah. you draw from that is that someone was following the Jews. They were part of a, um, part of a tour group, I think. There was several of them, maybe five, or seven, six or seven. And um, they were just walking on the street, and when they reached a certain point, the bomb went off, and, and they were targeted. So um, the strange thing is that, yeah, that the Jews, Israeli Jews, were, were targeted. Uh, who was following them? Who was the wherewithal to know <coughs> that Israeli Jews had come from Israel to Istanbul for a trip? Well, you don't need to think too much about that. Um, and the other thing is is that you look at the video of it and you see that the bomb exploded from the ground up. There's several kind of manholes right in that exact area. And I looked at this area on, on Google Maps, looked at the exact location more or less uh, where the bomb exploded. And also there's pictures of the aftermath where the kind of police or authorities that came afterwards had a small area, you know, maybe three or four feet a meter or two square, cordoned off with like a blue kind of barrier that you can't see through. And it looks like it's right in the area where, they, where there was a manhole, you know. Um, there's almost like they have identified uh, the mark where the bomb exploded, you know. So this was forensic for forensic analysis or whatever. Um but it's interesting because, I mean, it was interesting, this one in particular, because I could look at <clears throat> at the videos and look at the real, at the street on, on Google on Google Street View, and I could see um, where the bomb exploded. I could see the people that were walking along, and I could see the group of Israeli Jews walking up the side of the street and then see the bomb explode right as they passed by where it was. This was clearly a bombing it was targeted these Jews and it was a bomb very likely placed underground. Um, it was a relatively small bomb. I mean, for that reason, it wasn't in the open air, so to a certain extent, it was the explosive force was contained, but it was enough to kill uh, three or four people. Um, so that, I mean, take away the suicide bomber aspect and it seems to be fairly reasonable to do that. And then you have who has access to, you know, who can get down into manholes on a busy shopping street in Turkey, uh, who knows the movements of Israeli Jewish terrorists, or Israeli Jewish tourists from from Israel. And, um, yeah, it uh, doesn't take much figuring out after that, you know. If anyone's wondering if that's a stretch, because it does stretch the mind a bit to think that well, you've got to get them to walk up the street. They've got to be close enough. I mean, you've got to be waiting to choose the time to detonate. It does sound a bit far-fetched, but back in the beginning of the year in Istanbul also, another suicide, in quotes, bomb attack took place. 
killing 13 people on German Square, at which a group of German tourists were there. 12 of the 13 people killed were German nationals visiting the city. I think there's a lot of this going on with respect to these attacks. I mean, between that one and these more recent ones, we've had another one targeting military personnel, Turkish military personnel. Yeah. It's, it's, what strikes me is that there's some kind of tailored terror messaging going on. They've got it down to this kind of fine art where they'll specify what message we want to send to whom at this point in time. Now it's Germans, and that, remember, was right at the peak of the hysteria in Germany about what refugees. allegedly happened on oh, New Year's Eve with yeah. the whole refugee thing and the refugee crisis and the hysteria that's been going on since then. Um, one targeting Israeli Jews. <clears throat> it's clear the messaging will be for Israel, mm -hmm. the people back home. Um, we could have another one soon with a tour bus of American tourists, for example. Mm -hmm. Or, or British ones. In but the just, past, there have been bomb explosions at British banks in Istanbul. But just on the, on the tracking of Israeli Jews, I mean, it's instructive to, to read the reports on what happened immediately afterwards, that uh, <clears throat> within a few hours of it uh, coming out that Israeli Jews have been killed, the Israeli government had a plane flying to Turkey, to Ankara, or to Istanbul, uh, to pick them up and take them home. Immediately. I mean, you have to understand the, the kind of covetousness, if that's the right word, of, of the Israeli government towards Jews, you know, that uh, they're mine, you know, my people, and they're very protective of them. And it's a full protection, obviously, because uh, the biggest threat to Israeli Jews is really the Israeli government and what, it's, yeah. what it has been doing uh, for, for, for such a long time, creating a, a, an atmosphere, perpetuating an atmosphere of insecurity and violence in an area where most of the world's Jews live. I mean, you can't think of anything more uh, more irresponsible to do. Rather, but, but they have a very kind of like a, a schizophrenic or a kind of attitude in that way there, where uh, they put them in this position of extreme uh, insecurity and always make them feel afraid. Obviously, that serves the agenda of, of governments uh, to control people. Um, but at the same time, they have this, you know, we will protect you, you know, come to let me clasp you to my bosom type thing. And it's like it's, set, it's setting it up. It's, it's got the whole Jewish lives matter more uh, kind of feel to it, if yeah. you know what I mean, that they're extra special, they're special people. And, and so they were right there uh, to get these people to bring them home. So it's not, it's not a stretch to, to imagine that uh, the Israeli government would keep track of uh, the movements or easily be able to keep track of the movements. Of, of Israelis um, mm -hmm. traveling to other countries. They, they did the same thing after the attack on a Jewish school in France in Toulouse in 2012. Mm. Those four people who were victims at the school were French nationals who were Jewish. And a plane was out the next day, took them home to Israel to be buried there in a country they have Probably not, maybe no connection been. with other than being Jewish. Yeah. Yes. So, let's move on to the Russian plane. Okay. Um, the Russian plane. So, this happens right after. First thing you can't but fail to notice, the Russians announced we're pulling out of Syria, at least the bulk of their forces. And then another plane goes down 
in Rostov on Don, which is right next to southeastern Ukraine, where the conflict is still very much on between the Kiev junta mm-hmm. and the rebel militias. And you've got to go, oh, geez, not another one, another Russian plane. So what do we think happened there, Joe? Um, well, it's very strange. I mean, if you look at the number of planes full of people that have fallen out of the sky in one way or another over the past uh, five or six years, I think there's been... There have been a lot of planes falling out of the sky. Full of people, that means, yeah, it's, I mean, there's been, and been six, seven passenger been planes. Yeah. Like no survivors. Right. And if you look at the several of those, the evidence suggests, well, there's basically two two effects from for the vast majority of them, and that's um, they've been deliberately shot down or by some means or extreme weather event, as of which there are many these days, in case you haven't noticed, extreme weather all around the place. An extreme weather event um, took it down. The story behind it is that, um, I mean, the official story, when I first read the story, it was a um, plane tried to land at Rostov-on-Don because of high winds and poor visibility. It aborted the landing and went around. Uh, then it sat in a holding pattern, or holding patterns for two hours, up to two hours, and then tried to make another uh, landing. And the official word immediately afterwards from the Russian authorities was that the plane landed short of the runway or came in short of the runway. The wing clipped the tarmac, the the runway, and it crashed and burned. Then you watch underneath that statement, you watch the video of the plane coming, which is from a CCTV, CCTV camera across the road from the airport enclosure looking kind of at a right right angle to the to the runway apparently. And you and it's nighttime and it's black and white, but you see this light, which is apparently a light of the of, of the plane, coming down at an extremely sharp angle, not an attempted landing at all, unless it's a very unusual pilot. And um and crashes straight into the ground and blows up immediately on impact. So it's and completely fast, disintegrates. Fast, steep descent straight into the area and explodes. So yeah. this was not a failed landing attempt with wing clipping or whatever so why someone put that out is, is unusual and I don't know, know why um, but as to what what happened they, the closest they've got is, is they've said that um, there was a, an unusual phenomenon happening at the time where they basically I mean it's not it's kind of junk science or very basic kind of scientific explanation of it they're saying that the jet stream well it was a suggestion by a local weather not a weather reporter, but someone who works in the local weather center, mm. like a public servant in Russia. He suggested uh, something unusual like um, uh, the jet stream had lowered in right. this area. Which is weird. Which is weird, but I think the mechanism he's describing <clears throat> could be brought on. The jet stream is generally what? High up. High up, which a plane can travel and make use of, right. which is traveling but at the altitudes at which this thing was coasting around the city, trying to land in bad but not atrocious weather, the jet stream wouldn't generally be there. However, he could have been hitting the nail on the head in some, or not the nail on the head, that's too precise, but he could have been in the ballpark um, by suggesting something plummeting the plane down. Right, but that that suggests, I mean, there's been a previous uh, 
crash uh, Air Asia a couple of years ago that crashed uh, off um, Korea, Indonesia, Indonesia. Um, and it seems that what happened there, and this seems to be a, an increasingly common phenomenon where there's a sudden updraft, violent wind catches the plane, throws it straight up in the air, and then uh, because of atmospheric whatever uh, interactions, whatever, it then is uh, there's a sudden downdraft that slams it into the ground. And that's just, I mean, so strong, the wind is so strong that, that <clears throat> there's nothing you can do, and that's, that's all she wrote. And uh, the way this plane came down, something happened. This plane wasn't struggling to land. It wasn't coming in. The pilot wasn't able to maintain some semblance of a proper approach to the runway or anything like that. The plane came down at a, at a sharp angle. If you watch the video, it came at a very sharp angle and just went straight into the ground like it was falling out of the sky uh, or it was being, uh, being thrown down or pushed down, whatever. Uh, so it's possible. I think we're looking at a <clears throat> possibly a really weird, unusual, extreme weather event that makes yeah. air travel a little more risky. And what's another little weird element to it is that even if we allow for that weirdness, so an extreme weather phenomenon, highly localized, grabbing only this plane, because in the meantime, while this thing was coasting, Certainly other planes right. had successfully landed. Yeah, one other plane. Yeah, so that's weird enough. But then, but the location where, let's say this extreme weather event we allow for it chose to slam the plane back to earth was right next to the runway yeah <laughs> presumably from a big height he wasn't landing at that point in time no. he just happened to be back above the runway and then kaboom oh he's landed on it but vertically yeah. bahar you have uh, you have what's the latest update on that oh yes uh, i was reading the rt article on the crash and they uh they've written down uh, three possible explanations. Um, well, one of them is uh, that they think that it was an air pocket that dragged the plane to the left of the runway center, and the plane uh, debris was were scattered to the left as well. Hmm. Uh, some experts say that. So the plane was ascending and then suddenly dived down. Uh, yes. Experts say that this was an air pocket that dragged the plane to the left of the runway center. An air pocket. Doesn't sound very menacing, does it? Mm. A little air pocket. Sure, who doesn't like a little air pocket? I mean, what's an air pocket? And again, this is, these are the explanations that's, that say to me that they don't know. They don't, they don't know. The, this, the, the phenomenon, the, the weather conditions that they're trying to describe here, they don't have the words to describe it because they haven't seen it before. It's not really something that... Uh, they see very often what is becoming increasingly common today. Um, what about? <coughs> I'm going to play a little, uh, play a little song for you. Here. That was a recording of me dragging a metal table across the floor earlier on today. 
So that's, what's that got to do with anything? That's a nice song, Joe. That's a good start. Uh, Thank you, Joe. Yep. Just thought I'd put, throw that in there. It was. Uh, you got a music career ahead of you. Yep. It's called, I call it metal groaning. Heavy metal. Heavy metal groaning. It's a new type of heavy metal. Um, no, that was actually a recording of a sound in the sky. In the sky, quote unquote. Um, Heard in Drada. In Ireland. On March 13th last week. Mm. Uh, many people reported hearing it. Uh, this recorded, I'm pretty sure it's legit because somebody uploaded to YouTube and then obviously people in the town got wind of it and they, hundreds, well, certainly dozens of them commented and said, yeah, I heard that too. What was that? So they might be clueless, but we have at least some recognition of it because it's, of course, another instance of these quote-unquote strange sky sounds that have been heard all over the place of late. Um, there was also another recording in Bern, Switzerland, uh, beginning of this month, and there have been several others, um, especially since the start of this year. I think it went quiet for a couple of years after this initially exploded into public awareness back in 2011. Um, it's weird. It still makes me yeah. go, whoa, what is that? Best we can come up with is that it's some kind of cosmic radiation that is setting up a resonance with something in the area in which it's heard. Could be something... Something in the ground. In the ground. Could be anything in theory, though. Could be a building. It just depends on maybe the frequency of the actual uh, radiation that's entering the... Uh, that's, that's, that's approaching or that's hitting the, the object uh, and it resonates, it creates a, a sound. So yeah. basically invisible energy that's creating a sound because of the, the frequency of it. And it means what? Well, it means that there's cosmic energy slash radiation, whatever you want to call it, uh, cosmic waves uh, that are... Yeah. Uh, that in recent years have it, begun to uh, infiltrate our atmosphere on our planet and uh, what they actually mean. It suggests two things. It suggests something new from without. And, you know, when we say new, it doesn't mean that it's never happened before, but it's new to anyone alive today. In terms, that of, way. Well, in terms of the frequency as well. Yeah. It's new also in the sense that this may go on all the time, but something has changed in our own environment that enables us to hear it. It's become audible waves for some reason. So it's an, another indication, we take it, that the environment itself is changing. The atmosphere, but also at ground level, something is, is going on. <clears throat> of course, we've seen all these other changes in seismic activity, earthquakes happening where they never have before, earthquakes happening, happening more frequently, um, I can't say with any certainty that there's an increase in volcanic eruptions because it's been so disputed by so many articles online. I've yet to find anyone who can find a baseline for what the normal, quote, level of volcanic activity is and, in other, and then compare it with what appears to be an increase in volcanic eruptions. However, having put that aside, and there... There are plenty of serious researchers who are quite convinced that there's been a change in the frequency of earthquakes in general. So this is um, 
probably all all related. Um, one other weird thing, mm. but also beautiful and scary and awesome. Not really scary. From the weird desk. A massive fireball over, mostly over England. But I think it was seen across the UK on St. Patrick's Day. It was called the St. Patrick's Day fireball because it was big and green. Because it was St. Patrick himself <clears throat> no, coming back. It was a leprechaun. To free the slaves. <laughs> to bring uh, justice and freedom. It stood out, though. I mean, they've, they've had a lot of fireballs in the UK as just about everywhere. But this one stood out because it is now on record as being the brightest ever detected above the UK. Mm. At a magnitude of minus 14, which on a stellar magnitude scale, minus 14 in perspective, the sun is minus 26. On a bright blue sky day, when the sun is like that, that's minus 26. The next brightest thing in the sky is the moon at something like minus 7. On a bright full moon night, this thing actually caused any camera that recorded it to completely white out. It just blotted out any footage of it temporarily. It was so bright. And it caused everybody to go... Uh, yeah, that's pretty bright. Um, well... I think that's... Uh, that's a wrap for this week. Um covered all the major things happening, major events over the past week or so. <clears throat> of course, we could go on for hours and hours, but <clears throat> we won't bore you anymore. Um, it's a strange, strange world. and These are strange, strange days. And we all need to keep our wits about us and keep our eyes open. And... As Relic would say, keep your eyes on the sky, eyes on the stars... And your feet on the ground. Yeah, feet on the ground and eyes on the stars. Anyway, yes. So, Bahar, thanks for joining us. I'm great to have you again. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners and to our chatters. We hope you enjoyed the show. We will be back next week with another show on another topic. Until then, check out our other shows Friday and Saturday. Have a good one. See you next week. Bye-bye.